Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. The Academy Awards are only a week away, and our discussion of the technical Oscars will finish up just in time. Today, our ninth of 10 episodes is about original song, and I'm happy to once again welcome back some friends of the show. Chris Malamphy, chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the Slate podcast, Hit Parade. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Skid. Great to be here. We're also joined by Louis Weeks, media and film composer. Louis, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. And making his podcast debut, Tom Payton, LA-based composer, singer, and songwriter, who's written and produced songs for the likes of Pitbull, Panic at the Disco, Lizzo, and Ex-Ambassadors. Tom, glad you could join us. Excited to be here. Listeners, if you want to learn more about my guests, please look them up on the Internet Movie Database, where Below the Line has its own page and can serve as your starting point. These guests also have an online presence outside of the movie industry, so Google search them if you're curious. The nominations for Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures, aka Original Song, are Applause from Tell It Like a Woman, Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick, Lift Me Up from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Natu Natu from RRR, and This Is a Life from Everything Everywhere All at Once. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this a warning. Additionally, I'm offering my apologies in advance in case I mispronounce the names of any nominees. Without further ado, first, applause from Tell It Like a Woman, music and lyric by Diane Warren. So we have been doing this for four years now, and correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, I think all four of those years, we have talked about a Diane Warren song, and here we go again. <laughs> and why does Diane Warren keep getting nominated? Because she hasn't won yet. At least she's never won a competitive Oscar. The wrinkle this year is that, and this was already bestowed in late 2022, Ms. Warren has won an honorary Oscar for her work in countless soundtrack films. So she was already the recipient of an award. And if you thought that was going to satisfy the Academy such that they didn't have to keep nominating her for these tiny, tiny movies that largely, it's almost as if the movie exists as a vehicle for the Diane Warren power ballad, you don't know the Academy. Somebody wants this woman to win a competitive Oscar. This is her 14th nomination. She's not quite in Susan Lucci territory yet, but she's getting there. I believe this is something like her fifth or sixth year in a row that she's been nominated. And as I pointed out when we had this conversation last year, the, th the thing you need to realize about Diane Warren's passel of Oscar nominations is that the last half of them are for really small movies where the nomination is bigger than the film. That was not true early in Warren's career. She was nominated for things like Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now from Mannequin, How Do I Live from Con Air, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from uh, Armageddon, the Up Close and Personal song uh, Because You Loved Me. All of these were massive, in some cases, number one Billboard Hot 100 hits. 
Whereas the songs that she's been nominated for for the last however many years have all been from tiny documentaries. This year, it's an anthology film of films about women. The film is called uh, Tell It Like a Woman. And there's a part of me that would kind of love for Diane to just kind of win this thing already so we can lance that boil and get it over with. <laughs> I'll speak about the song itself after I've let others have the floor, but um, the stakes this year are the same question we ask every year. Is Diane Warren finally going to win her competitive Oscar? So I leave it up to you guys. Chris, I rarely jump in this early, but in talking about the film itself, I don't know anyone who's actually seen it. It had a very limited festival run, and whoever purchased the distribution rights doesn't seem to be leveraging the Oscar nomination to reach a wider audience. I watched the movie. What? That's that's impressive. (laughs) Oh, Tom shoots and scores. Wow, Tom, you are like already our highest achiever on this call. Go ahead. (laughs) Your very first appearance. Well done. I wanted to be as prepared as possible. And since I'm doing it for the first time, I was like, I want to understand the context of how the songs fit into the movies. And so I made sure to watch all five. This was, of of course, the the biggest stretch, I guess. Although I will say, even though we're not here to talk about the movie, I did enjoy it. I thought that a number of the um, the anthologies were quite compelling. Anyways, it was only available on Amazon Prime. Sort of to your point, Skid, about like there's only one place to rent it, and it is four ninety nine. So I paid my four ninety nine to watch it, and. It fits into the movie in a, you know, fine way, but also um, from listening to your guys' conversation about score, Louie, your point about how this feels like a year where score and film are so tied, I feel like that's also the case with a lot of the songs. And with this one, it feels a little more separated in a way that's pretty conspicuous. I also think that, Chris, your kind of like detective work about sort of the the narrative of what's going on between Diane Warren and the Academy is so spot on because, right, the fact that she didn't win for Don't Want to Miss a Thing is, I don't know what the other nominees were that year, but that is a travesty. That is an absolute classic. And you're totally right that that was the moment for her to win. And the fact that she's later in her career and is still making really legitimate music and releasing music herself. It's not to, I want to choose my words wisely. There was a period of her career where she was on fire, right? Where she was just making this incredible music that was incredibly successful. And the fact that she didn't win in that era is unfortunate. But the fact that they're trying to make up for it now feels totally uh, out of touch. I appreciate your point about lancing the boil and just (laughs) getting her win in there. So you don't have to see any more Diane Warren nominations but there are just a couple other songs that are just so, so good that I feel like it's not like this is a down year, uh, I would argue. And so I I hope that this isn't the year that she wins it. But I also think that this thing they're doing of just continuing to put her up in competitive categories is goofy. If you listen to all the nominees together, kind of back to back, this is the one that stands out in terms of just production. It really doesn't sound like it was made this year. It was. But it's, it's production is not a reflection on the greater trends in music production. And it doesn't sound like it, that was a choice in terms of the production of the film. It just sounds like maybe this was a kind of, th- these are the production choices of someone who comes from a different era. Interestingly enough, in this category, there's another song that makes that choice, but it's much more uh, intentional and has to do with the story as a kind of reboot homage piece. 
I'm talking about the Lady Gaga song. But when you listen to this song in the context of the other nominees, it really sticks out as a kind of throwback. And it's it's hard to see it as an intentional or even a kind of knowing throwback. It kind of feels more like a, a piece from someone whose aesthetics were set 20, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I, I, I'm a big proponent that like music doesn't have to be new to be good. And in fact, quite the opposite. I think that new is pretty much a... a you should come into new music, especially new pop music, with some skepticism because of the way that new was pushed at us. But I do think that there's not a lot of insight into the in the production value mm-hmm. of the song. It doesn't really tell us about the time that we're living in. It doesn't really tell us about the production choices that other people are making. It doesn't really tell us about much other than th- these are the choices of someone who has a very, very set aesthetic. And that aesthetic was extremely popular a while ago. And, you know, that's totally fine. It just doesn't follow the trend of the other songs in the category in that it's it's using the, the language of pop music production to reflect what's happening today in the film world. This might surprise you guys based on what you both just said about how old-fashioned the song sounds. But I suspect that for Diane Warren, this was a reach into something more contemporary for her. And I'll tell you why. Mm. I had to look up who was singing this song because some years it's it's a bigger deal than others. Even on some of these tiny songs that Warren has been getting nominations for. Uh, last year, she got Reba McIntyre to sing it. That's somebody we've clearly heard of. Um, a few years ago, and Tom, you weren't here last year when I gamed this out, but really what should have happened was about five years ago, Warren should have won for a song that Lady Gaga sang from a small documentary called The Hunting Ground, where she was up for the Oscar that year and was the favorite. And then she lost to uh, the second straight James Bond song, The Writings on the Wall by Sam Smith, which was not remotely as good a James Bond song as the previous James Bond song and surprised everybody, including Sam Smith, when he won, when they won, excuse me. I think it also surprised Radiohead too. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, the singer of this song is Sophia Carson. She's a Disney Channel actress. And when I listened to this song, weirdly, because I was expecting old fashioned, I thought, huh, this is Warren trying to sound like she's in the 2020s. And yet I fundamentally agree with you guys that at the end of the day, it still sounds like Diane Warren from 30 years ago, because that's how Diane Warren is wired. Also, Tom, because you're new to the panel, I will tell you that I have groused and griped in prior years about Diane Warren. She's one of those people where I fundamentally acknowledge her talent. I think she's ridiculously capable as a songwriter, but I, even in her heyday, which was the late eighties and the nineties, the age where she was getting number one hits from everybody from DeBarge to Millie Vanilli to Bad English to Celine Dion. I really didn't like most of those songs. I can name the number of Diane Warren hits I've liked on the fingers of one hand. Uh, by the way, the Aerosmith song is not one of them. I actively loathe that song. Oh, no. But if she had won for that, at least we would not still be talking about this, you know, 25 years later. So there's a part of me that kind of wishes she had one for that song. For her, I think this song is sturdy enough. Oddly, I think what it has in common as we segue into the other songs is I think several songs in the category this year sound a little old fashioned to me, even old fashioned for the person recording them. And weirdly, it's almost to me as if Warren was trying to meet somewhere in the middle and didn't quite get there. This is contemporary for her. Some of the instrumentation sounds plausible by current radio standards, but obviously this is nowhere near the radio. So that's a moot point. 
I'll damn it with faint praise by saying that by Diane Warren's standards, I thought it was pretty good. But will it win? Uh, I don't know. I'm really glad you're bringing that up because I actually I, I forgot that I had a very similar feeling on the first listen of the song relative to this question of like her trying to be current. Yes. In some of the small rhythmic phrases like applause because you do like some of the rhythmic stuff that she chooses to do in the chorus is like imitating almost like 2010s R&B stuff. I heard that too. I'm with you on that. I, I agreed. I was like, oh, interesting. Diane Warren doing a little bit of this. But it's fascinating how regardless of the specific sort of like compositional choices, the sensibility is so front and center. And the sensibility is so clearly still what she has been doing for the last 30 years. So however much she may try and tweak the edges, the core of the thing is still like, this is how you make music. And especially sort of the emotional side of it, right? The way that she writes the lyrics and what she chooses to write it about and how direct she's willing to be and how directly she's willing to talk to the audience. Like no matter how much she may make those little choices, it's still so clearly what it is. Also on the Sophia Carson front, I had a similar, I should know who she is being like a, you know, pop songwriter or whatever, but I had heard the name, but I hadn't necessarily heard any of her music. She hasn't had any big, big hits yet. So she's still kind of developing, but yeah. Right, exactly. She's like an Olivia Rodrigo in the making, but isn't quite at Olivia Rodrigo's level, basically. That's sort of an interesting pairing too, relative to like, Olivia Rodrigo making an album that felt so like, this is who I am. This is what's happening, you know? Right. And we're talking about Sophia Carson singing the song of somebody where we're questioning, you know, relevancy a little bit. But I will say that there's actually a remix of the song that is in the credits of the film. And the remix is way better. And the huh. song plays so much because it's more of a kind of like four on the floor, like upbeat empowerment sort of vibe, as opposed to... Um, now I'm just sort of taking the guardrails off a schlocky sort of ballad. And there's something about that sentiment of empowerment and whatever else over that thing that actually feels when we're like, oh, OK, this kind of makes sense. But then again, right, relative to the movie's choice of which recording to submit and the Academy's choice of which one to highlight. I don't know about that because I think that there are actually two viable versions of the song. And the one that seems more common is uh, less compelling really interesting about the remix because one of the things about this song is that it tells me that this is a kind of pop sensibility that's been interpreted through a very old school sit down at a piano how would i analyze what's happening in 2022 at a piano or at a with an acoustic guitar which is a very old school production way to do it you know there's this great john bryan line about you know there's the there's the song and then there's the artifact of of the recording and the artifact of the recording is not something that you can recreate. That's the, that's the gate on the reverb of, on the drums. That's the, the sound of the amp. The song is what you could play around the campfire. And those two things are not the same thing. And I think that what we're getting here is a kind of like a campfire interpretation of what pop music is through the lens of this like icon. <laughs> it's kind of confusing. It's not terrible, but it is like, it kind of gives you a little bit of it gives me a little bit of kind of time sickness where I'm like, whoa, what era am I in? Like, what are we interpreting here? Um, and I think that that confusion about about like, how would you interpret this through a, through a computer or like a through dance techniques, dance music techniques? 
that's something that are in other nominees. To me, that's what I got away from it. It's like, okay, this is this is an interpretation of some pop tropes through an older technique of um, harmonic and musical interpretation, as opposed to like, all right, let's run it through the computer and like, let's chop it up and like, let's really like see how far we can push this thing. Agreed. Next up, Hold My Hand from Top Gun Maverick. Music and lyric by Lady Gaga and Blood Pop. So I think we could all tell when this song materialized last spring that this song wanted to be an Oscar nominee. It's written all over the the bones of the song. First of all, it should be said that a ballad from a Top Gun movie took this prize about 37, 38 years ago when Berlin's Take My Breath Away, written by Giorgio Moroder, the legend of Donna Summer fame, took home the Oscar for best song. Watching it slow motion as you took my Maverick. And not to be snarky, I've met Take My Breath Away. You, sir, are no Take My Breath Away. It's fine. And I'm a Lady Gaga fan, I should say. I was happy, thrilled for her that she won for Shallow. Shallow is an all-timer. You know, Shallow is one of those songs that will go down in the history of best original song winners that everybody will shrug and go, oh, of course. Deservedly. It's, it's a legit great song. What's funny also in terms of the stakes here is this turned out not to be a hit. I'm pretty sure it missed the top 40. In fact, I should probably double check that. But the big top 10 hit from Top Gun Maverick was the beach football scene song by One Republic, I Ain't Worried, the one with the whistling, which went top 10. It peaked at number six on the Hot 100. It was a legitimately huge radio hit and a surprising one for One Republic who haven't had a hit in the better part of a decade. It is not hip. It is not a cool song. It's kind of a middle-aged person song. And I say that as a middle-aged person myself, but I got a kick out of I Ain't Worried. I think it was a hit for a reason. And this is all power moves. And um, Gaga's been here before, and that doesn't mean it won't win again. This kind of song totally takes home the Oscar many years. But the fact that she's won this prize before and only about four years ago suggests to me that she may have an uphill battle winning it again. One of the things that makes Maverick such a surprising, in a good way, film for me is the way that it handled its own feelings about the throwback. As a film, it served up some pretty meaty softballs of nostalgia and then kind of immediately undercut it in some very smart ways. There are some senses where we're shown a, a scene that we've seen before in the previous movie and it could have just lingered on it and been like oh isn't that wonderful we're doing this again but it undercut it and it was like no we we can't go back there it's a different and i thought that was a really mature way of handling 
the echoes of the first film in this movie. Conversely, in this song, it really has a retro throwback vibe to it. And there's nothing complicated about it in a way that really makes the song not as successful as the movie is. It doesn't really have any feelings about the 80s influence that's in the production of the song. It just kind of says like, oh, hey, we're going to like, these are some drum sounds that you might have heard in the 80s. Here's some guitar tones you might have heard. Isn't that cool? There's nothing really critical about the feeling of nostalgia that it evokes, whereas the film itself is kind of critical of it. It's a popcorn blockbuster, so it's not too critical, but it, it has a kind of complexity of emotion about the feeling of looking back at the first film that I think makes it very, very successful and more mature than I, I was expecting. If I may drop a word into what you're saying, Louis, the movie is very meta. Oh, for sure. In that it's kind of, it's aware of itself. It's a Top Gun movie that knows it's a Top Gun movie. And not only that, it's it's not winking. It's actually like kind of uh, Richard Gere gazing off to the side, uh, you know. I totally agree. The first thing I said to my movie-going companion when we walked out of that was, I forgot that a movie could be that earnest. Yeah. That movie wasn't just like a throwback to the 80s in terms of, you know, it's Top Gun again. It had the tone of an 80s movie. It was, right. it was not winking at you at all. Without the meanness of 80s movies. Correct. And I think that it did a lot of heavy lifting emotionally in terms of doing what we expect movies today to do, but also satisfying a lot of the, the feelings of movies from the 80s. Anyway, musically, none of that is happening in this song. It's just like, let's make a pop song. Let's <laughs> throw some gated reverb on the drums, give you some really chorusy, uh, distorted guitars. And uh, hey, doesn't this sound like the original Top Gun a little bit mixed with Lady Gaga? And that's fine. It's like you don't really hear that that often. And and that's cool. I like the score a lot for the film. And I think there was some homage to the score in the production of the song. That being said, I think it missed the mark in terms of it doesn't provide any complicated worldview the way that the film itself kind of complicates how it feels about itself. I totally agree with that. And I also think that the comparison of Hold My Hand to Take My Breath Away is such a potent one around a lot of things that can be very ephemeral and hard to nail down, but very essential to classic songs. When you're being simple and poetic and when you're being simple and meaningless. And I don't mean to say that Hold My Hand is meaningless necessarily, but like Take my breath away is a phrase upon which you can hang a whole thing. Hold my hand. Well, I mean, uh, right. There have been other versions of hold my hand. Hootie and the Blowfish is one that comes to mind. And I probably prefer that interpretation of the title than this one. Listen to my February episode of Hit Parade. It's all about Hootie and the Blowfish. Hashtag self-promotion. There, there you go. <laughs> I'm happy to set you up with the alley-oop. Right. Take my breath away is if both of these things are very on two very, very close to each other in terms of like, ooh, just a classic, simple phrase that has a lot of meaning that we can just write a whole world around and take my breath away. I mean, I think also just the title itself. I prefer it. But also what they then do with it is just so meaningful and big and broad. I mean, it also comes down to not just the lyrics, but the the production and the kind of melodic choices. And of course, songs have so many different ways that they can be written. It's not to say you should have written the song like this other song, but just the sense of like, take my breath away, ding, 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 ding. just saying the phrase and then letting this 
this great synth line sort of speak through the thing versus hold my hand in contrast, which feels like it's doing so much work to try and make sure that you know that this is a serious emotional song for you to have big, serious emotions about it. By the time we get through the full arc of the structure, I guess a verse in the chorus, or maybe could argue it's just a whole refrain. I'm like, okay, that was fine, but I'm not, it, it doesn't cut right through to what the thing is. I guess part of my point is that both occupy a very simple space and both probably had their sights on being classic. And I think take my breath away, it's borne out that of course that's the case. And this does not get there. And it's I'm just fascinated by the margins of why taste and the way the whole thing fits together means that a simple thing either does or does not achieve that. I think that's spot on. I mean, you got me thinking about something that I think a lot of people, if they were to describe what they love about pop songs, they would talk about the lyrics and the melody. They would not, I would venture, talk about the riffs in between the vocal lines. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't feel that, but that's just, it's kind of like if you ask someone to describe what they like about ketchup, like they're not going to list out the 32 flavors <laughs> in it. Um, they're going to be like, I don't know. You know, it's, I like the tomatoiness of it. My point is that I think that if the magic in a good pop song is these little melodic things that are not necessarily in the vocal part. Mm. And it, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of space to develop that stuff. And I think there's a lot of a lot of impatience uh, around that stuff now. It's like, okay, let's just, we just got to put hook on hook on hook on hook. And if you do that, you're not allowing that beautiful descending synth line to like transmit any emotion or create any space. And that kind of um, impatience is a real backfiring mechanism. It really, really like just blows up um, in your face because you think you're doing what people want. You think you're giving the people what they want, which is just lots of hooks. But if in a weird way, if you don't take the time and have the confidence to like lay out, be like, we're not going to sing. We're just going to let the synth tell you how to feel. It doesn't work. You know, also, you run the risk of convincing yourself that you have created a complete thing with a lot of half ideas, because like you're saying, if yes. you're impatient, you're like, well, we had this thing and then this thing and then that. And then we went up and then we came back down and like you can say like, well, yeah, we did all this stuff. And so this should add up to the thing as opposed to saying, here is one great thing. Here is a great thing. And what do we need another great thing? Can we just do this, you know, sort of like the the confidence and patience of saying, we know that this matters, you know? I guess that we're implying here that hold my hand does not do that. I think that's true. I think that's how I feel. But also, you know, like you said, Chris, being a Lady Gaga fan, like she has done it, you know? And I think that that's also just another fundamental complexity of making things, which is just because you've made a great thing, you just keep making and keep making and your ability to hit that space again uh, is never guaranteed. I'm struck by what Louis said, by the idea that made basically this is a movie power ballad for the age of streaming in the sense that it tried to get to the bigness way too fast. I mean, think about Shallow, to talk about Lady Gaga for a minute. Think about how long it it builds to that explosion. I mean, it really agonizingly makes you wait. And it's so cathartic when it happens because you've been waiting for it. By the way, I looked it up. Uh, this uh, song, Hold My Hand, peaked at number 49, so it didn't even make the top 40. So the public has spoken as far as this record goes. 
just to really hammer home the point, Chris, the song that stuck with you the most from this, you referenced a non-vocal part in that song, the whistling part. Which is a little bit of a gimmick. And yet it's yeah. like it's the point you both are making as musicians about what's the first thing you remember about Take My Breath Away. It's probably not even a vocal line. It's that doom, 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 doom. And the heaviness of it and the synthiness of it. It's iconic to use that overused word. But it's the thing you remember from Take My Breath Away. And I don't think there's anything like that in Hold My Hand. One last thought I had, and I'm curious, Tom, if you've crossed paths with uh, the guy who calls himself Blood Pop, Michael Tucker, who is the co-writer of this song. I have not. I've heard of him. but Yeah. So this is a guy who can write very modern stuff. He wrote one of my favorite number one hits of the last 10 years, uh, Sorry by Justin Bieber. I adore that record. I believe it was produced by Skrillex. It's got a very modern, for the time, it now sounds a little dated to 2015, but at the time it was right on target with the, on, or rather on trend with the so-called tropical house sound. And the guy has produced very cutting edge stuff. I think he got the brief for this song, he and Lady Gaga. We need Take My Breath Away. We need a power ballad, except get to that hook really fast because it's the streaming era and we need people not to skip the song. And um, I don't know. It seems to be leaving all of us cold, and it's, it certainly has left the public cold because it wasn't a big hit. So go figure. Our third nominated song is Lift Me Up from Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Music by Thames, Rihanna, Ryan Coogler, and Ludwig Goransson. Lyric by Thames and Ryan Coogler. Lift me up So out of all of the songs in this category, this is the biggest hit. It was a number two hit on the Hot 100. But it was also what I call, as a chart analyst, a quick burn hit. It was out of the top 10 very rapidly. It was off the radio very quickly. The meta story is what's interesting here because it's Rihanna. The world has been waiting for Rihanna to follow up her 2016 album, Anti, for lo these seven years. And we just watched her on the Super Bowl halftime show and the message she seemed to be sending right up to and including rubbing her pregnant belly is don't hold your breath. I don't have an album for you. Although she did give a subsequent interview in which she's indicated there's a chance that this album might be coming within the next year. She has been working on it. But Rihanna's career is fascinating because from 2006, 2005 until 2016, she basically churned out an album a year on a rigorous clockwork schedule and scored hit after hit after hit. She has 14 number one hits on the Hot 100, which is a staggering number that's higher than Michael Jackson. So she's a hit maker that the whole world is waiting for. Paul Grine at Billboard made an interesting point in one of his articles covering the awards beat for Billboard. He said, if Rihanna does the Super Bowl halftime show and doesn't take advantage of that platform to play Lift Me Up, her song from Wakanda Forever, then you know she's missing an opportunity. Well, she did not perform Lift Me Up at the Super Bowl halftime show. 
um, she's stuck with classic proven hits like Umbrella and Diamonds and Pick Your Favorite, Only Girl in the World, et cetera, which says to me that even Rihanna maybe doesn't fully believe in this song. I, I, I'd be curious to know what you guys think of it, because I have very mixed feelings about it as a song. Mm. That I just wanted to set that stage because to me, the meta story is what's most interesting here. And the fact that this nominee was literally the Super Bowl halftime headliner just weeks before the Oscars. That in itself is a very interesting dynamic. Mm. Well, and I would also, you know, we've been talking a little bit about how the song fits into the context of the film, how it's either used within the, the run of the film or how it fits with the story. And I mean, for me, this definitely is one where like the, then the meta story of Wakanda Forever, you know, Chadwick Boseman passing and this being at this moment where it's reflection and it's the end of the film. This is one where the emotional resonance definitely was pretty striking uh, to me, just in terms of the work that the song was doing in the movie. And I would also say that I think these first three are all shooting for a pretty similar thing. They're all shooting for a space of we are trying to be a classic, you know, emotional ballad. Here's where there's a crescendo of sort of of music and sound within the world of, of the movie. And I do think this one gets the closest, especially because of its use. Um, but also, I would say in terms of just the writing itself, and, and this is sort of the point I was making about Hold My Hand, uh, lift me up, hold me down, like th those phrases and Rihanna delivering them within the context of Wakanda Forever, those phrases start to get to a space of being a little more kind of like resonant and like you're making a moment of this. Also, one thing I just want to point out composition wise that I do like about it is that it sort of steps outside of verse chorus structure. It still feels very much like a pop song. It's a super standard progression, just one, four, five, one through the whole thing, pretty sure. And whereas hold my hand starts with the phrase hold my hand and then does a lot of work and sort of wanders back to it at the end this feels like it's very much asserting like this is a song like lift me up hold me down and that's like what it is and then it sort of moves on to the da -na 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 -na, which is not a verse really it's more kind of like a a b section to the a section and then it just does that three times so in terms of the composition of it there's a certain kind of like confidence and through line to it that I think is pretty satisfying. Right. I, I have sort of mixed feelings about the song. I, I like it and I have an impulse to sort of defend it, especially within the context of this zone we've been in of like, okay, these are all songs that are sort of aiming at a similar thing. This one to me feels like it gets the closest to its goal. What's effective for me about this song is that it has a kind of auteur vibe to it. The sense that this is written from a singular perspective um, and kind of expressed from a very personal place as opposed to a kind of maximalist production like the Lady Gaga song or a kind of formulaic production like the Diane Warren song. Tom, your note about the structure and the form, you know, it's it's I think of it as a very kind of contemporary idea in the sense that it's it's a mix between like kind of a hip hop influenced form mixed with folk music and a kind of an indie pop bedroom aesthetic, like where it's just like, okay, what we're going to do is we're just going to do the important parts. We're just going to write the stuff that works and we're not going to have a bridge because it doesn't need a bridge. We're not going to do a pre-chorus because it doesn't need that. Like it basically gets rid of all of the form 
And it's just a, like, what is the important part of the song? And let's just do it and we'll repeat it until it gets boring. And that kind of very matter of fact production choice and writing choice, I think it signals a very personal experience. You can imagine someone sitting down at the piano in their own home playing this. And I think that that's a very effective storytelling choice for the film. And it's a very effective musical move. In a way, it's kind of like what Billie Eilish does. It's kind of like what indie artists have been doing for a long time. I think it, it's a cool idea. Like, it, you know, when you think of, of this franchise as a Disney franchise, it really makes you think, oh, they could have really done something a lot more ornate. They could have really gone too far with this. I think about Marvel pieces and, and like the music that's in them. And I'm always kind of calculating like, okay, well, when do they want to signal that they're part of the Disney universe? Like, when are they telling us, hey, this is on Disney Plus through their music? And and I think that this song, some of the melodic choices feel very Disney to me. But the fact that it's stripped back and very simple in its structure and its form and very personal is a smart choice. Um, and I think they could have gone the other direction that would have been a mistake where it would have tried to make a kind of really, really complicated Disney-esque ballad and, and it really would have misfired, I think. Just to sort of build on what you're saying, I think all the choices that you're pointing out feel modern and contemporary, right? There's something that feels in terms of the sort of like general aesthetic of the thing, because it does feel like pop music has moved into a space of like a fair amount of authenticity. Like people are yes. wanting you to be speaking directly to you about real emotions. I mean, we went through a period of time where it was very common for mental health to be a topic of hit songs uh, over the last few years. I think that that space is part of what this song is getting to that, like you're talking about feeling personal and talking directly to you. And also you reference the fact that it's been going on in indie music for a while, thinking of, you know, uh, Lady Gaga writing for Top Gun of Diane Warren being nominated for the whatever fourth or fifth time in a row, whatever those ideas about modern music are might not assume that that the authenticity and the kind of really reaching out to the listener is actually where you need to start in, in order to be contemporary. I think this song does that in ways that those others don't. I think you totally hit the nail on the head. I don't mean to pour cold water on any of this because on balance, I like the song, but the general marketplace verdict on this song, not to be crass, was that, wow, we waited six years for a new Rihanna song and it's this. Like there was a lot of two and three star reviews of this song. I'm probably at about a three star review myself. I like it very much, but here's the thing. I... <laughs> We we just grouped together these three songs that we've been talking about as all trying to do some version of the stately movie ballad, right? I would say that the Rihanna song and the Diane Warren song are broadly in the same category. However, they're almost opposites, where we were saying that the Diane Warren song is somebody from 30, 40 years ago trying and not quite succeeding to do something contemporary. Here you have one of the most contemporary artists, Rihanna, even with the seven years she's been off. She is still one of the most contemporary pop stars of our day, fitting into the stately ballad box. And I think that rubbed a lot of people. I saw a lot of pop fans kind of shrugging at this song. Like, okay, the thing to remember about Rihanna's last wave of hits from 2016-17 is that she was really, even for her, pushing the envelope. Like her last number one hit was Work, which is a song that's based around dance hall 
and you know uses dancehall phrasing both in the melody and in the lyric. Uh, Needed Me, which was one of the longest lasting hits on that album, is almost a song that's been deconstructed and melted down. These songs are far more cutting edge, I think, than Lift Me Up is. However, for the stately movie ballad, I think Lift Me Up is, you're both getting at something here, advance for the stately movie ballad. One of the other songwriters involved in this one, by the way, is Thames, the Nigerian artist who has been gradually rising on the charts. She's basically one of the avatars of what's now called Afrobeat. She's got at least a couple of hits, including one that I love last year called Free Mind, which I think is one of the most beautiful songs written in the last two, three years. But she also is almost neutering a little bit what she normally does. It's got the bones buried deep of Afrobeat in this song, but you're not really hearing it at the top. I can't game out whether the fact that we're also happy that Rihanna is back in recording period helps her in this race, or if the kind of collective shrug that the marketplace gave this song, again, it leapt to number two immediately out of everybody who was like, who couldn't wait to hear it. And then it fell off radio playlists and fell off streaming playlists remarkably quickly. Like after Christmas, it did not come back. I don't know if the fact that it was kind of a short-lived hit hurts it. To your point, Chris, if I were to, this is impossible, but like, if, if I were to think about Rihanna's perspective here and this what this opportunity represents creatively and like just from a business perspective, <laughs> these types of opportunities are are re- if the really, really good ones. And I, I could see how a lot of like fans or critics might want to like try and place it in the larger body of work. But you know, I think it's also worth saying that like sometimes I think these projects for films, are viewed as kind of fun one-offs that like don't necessarily like need to be a part of a large redirect the arc of a career. Exactly. Redirect the arc of a career. It's like, okay, this is a fun month to spend in the studio or a week or sometimes a day, like depending on how, what they're doing. But like, this is a fun short amount of time to spend in the studio and make something that's like driven by another person's vision the creative impulse comes from the film first. It doesn't come from the Rihanna songwriting apparatus, you know? So I, I think that when any, anytime there's these pop stars and they do something for these movies, I, I always try and think like, okay, well, it's a great business decision in terms of like time spent and what they get out of it. But also creatively, like I could see how a lot of people would jump at the opportunity to write something that comes from a creative impulse outside of themselves. It comes from the script. It comes from the images on the screen. I think that there's a lot of artists who creatively like to sink their teeth in, into that type of challenge. Agreed. Now for something completely different. Next up, Natu Natu from RRR. Music by M.M. Kiravani. Lyric by Chandra Bozi. I've had enough of this nonsense! You two, out! No, Jake, I've had enough of your bullying. At the highest level, this song is an ambassador for its movie. RRR is one of the most interesting movies in the Oscar race this year 
first of all, because it is not up for best foreign film. India did not submit it as its candidate for best foreign film. Uh, and the movie they did submit did not even make the final five. It is a blockbuster, a global blockbuster. It has even made serious money in America and been a hit on Netflix. It is in Telugu. It is uh, not in uh, Hindi. It is technically not a Bollywood film. It is a Tollywood film. And it already won the Golden Globe for Best Original Song. Not that we should place too much stock in that tarnished prize-giving authority, but nonetheless, I do think it was somewhat telling that some of these same candidates were up for the Golden Globe and Natsu Natsu wound up taking it. And finally, it's a unicorn in the five we're talking about here because it is a Tollywood dance number. It is endemic. It's endemic to the plot. The reason you can hear dialogue in that clip you just played, Skid, is that it appears at a, a peak, an early peak of the movie. I watched the movie and it's a joyous scene. It's not a chart hit in America yet, but I could see a scenario where if it wins the prize, it could make a brief chart appearance. We should remember that when Jai Ho won Best Original Song about 15 years ago from uh, Slumdog Millionaire, it actually briefly made the Billboard Top 40. So this song has the most interesting potential, and it's, I would say, the most unique in the category. First off, it's very important to me to say that it is a banger. Like, it is here, here. a certified banger of a song. It feels like we're sort of, we've been in this one zone talking about the first three songs and we're now sort of entering into this other space of songs that I think are a little less common or a little less what you would expect to be nominated for this award. But it is just so energetic and exciting and infectious. And I think that the things we're already starting to talk about, the fact that it's not a song that comes from some outside space that is then inserted into the world of the movie. It is the world of the movie. Like this song drives the story forward, drives this moment forward of, you know, Beam and Rom like really connecting and asserting themselves in this English space, right? It like it has so much narrative power. I mean, I've just gone back and watched that scene multiple times since then. And each time I watch it, I'm like, this is good. Like, I, I just am enjoying watching it. So it occupies such a different emotional space. But another thing that I've been thinking about that's kind of funny about it is in terms of the actual composition of it and in terms of the lyrics, like it's a dance song, because I think not to means uh, literally dance based on the translation of what of the scene. And so the idea that it's just a song about dancing like dance as tangy as a mango and the idea that this compositionally is in this space i think is pretty fun and interesting but i also do think this question of like are you looking at the song as it is or lou like you you're talking about are you looking at the the recording the record of the song in this current moment but then this other layer of how does this song or even the record itself make meaning within the movie itself and I mean, this is just totally beyond. This is in a different sort of like artistic stratosphere in terms of how image and sound sort of come together to do a thing. The idea of best original song is such a, seems like a pretty narrow, you know, band of things like, okay, well, that's, you know, songs in a movie. But like when you see something like this and you're like, oh, the other songs were different. They're doing different things. They are dropped in they're really kind of speaking in a kind of editorial function as opposed to being baked into the story itself 
and, and it shows like really like music in films is just like it's so, it has a lot of different ways that it operates it can feel all like oh this this cue is a lot like this cue because if we're hearing music and there's moving images and um but it really is like the difference between a musical and a pop song that's licensed for a film is really kind of night and day in terms of like the feeling it evokes and the technical challenges. All of this is to say like the amount of prep and te technical and like logistics that need to go into like a production like this to be integrated into the film. It's basically like a, a whole unit of the film is required for something like this. Not that one's better or worse than the other. It's just a totally different, um, totally different thing. If we're really gonna like get granular about it, I think that like the Oscars should have a separate category for music that functions as a kind of musical. Every year we talk about scores. You know, last year we we talked about Encanto where there was the score, and it's a musical, so it's hard to tell really like how does the music in the score function differently than the song and how does it differ from the story? And the answer is that you can't pick one apart from the other. You can't disentangle it. And I think that it would be cool to see some recognition from the Academy about the fact that the movie business is built off of musicals. It is like a staple of what we're looking at now. And I think that it goes a little unacknowledged just how much of an influence the musical has on a contemporary movie. And I think it would be cool to like see it, not that it should be in a separate category, but I just think that it would be very easy for someone looking at this category to be like, oh, there's a Lady Gaga song. And then there's this song and they're basically doing the same thing. And they're so not doing the same thing. It's like- It's different sports. It's a totally different sport. Yeah. So I, I don't really have any other thoughts on this other than like you said, it, it's an absolute banger. It's cool. The production is- super super interesting and very personal like there's some personal production choices that don't sound like oh they just hit the preset on the synth and like i haven't heard any of those sounds before in other songs so it's very handmade it's very personal it's very like idiosyncratic yeah there's a lot of of skill and and thought that goes into to a very carefree and fun song so yeah, it's a really interesting piece. I'll be very interested to see how it competes against these other songs that are, like you said, Chris, just a different sport. I really like your idea of having these separate categories because also relative to just this idea of awards and best, and you know, it feels like we're in a moment of people doing the most questioning of the validity of this idea ever. If you're going to say it's the best song, there is a certain way where a musical integrating the song into the emotional arc of the story, it's like it almost has a leg up on everything else because you're invested in this other way, as opposed to like we're talking about a song coming in from the outside. So that distinction between those right different forms of filmmaking, right? I think are important relative, especially a category like this, where best, okay, what are we actually talking about? And how much is that influenced by how you feel listening to the song, especially seeing the song, the music. And there, there aren't other meta and Chris, I'll hand it off to you because this is your, um, this is your wheelhouse. There aren't other meta considerations as far as I'm aware of where like, when we talk about the Lady Gaga song, when we talk about the Rihanna song in these films, we're talking about their careers. We're talking about where, this artist 
And how does their participation in this film, what does it say about their career and what does it say about what they think about their career? Whereas this song is so integrated into the story, it would be silly to, to ask that because this is what the story needed. You know, this is what the production needs. It's a script choice, essentially. And so there just aren't these meta, there's just different conversations around the like commercial aspects of the song that just are, it's a whole different, it's a whole different conversation. You know, it's funny, the Golden Globes, I can't believe I'm bringing them up again. They have a separate musical or comedy category from the drama category, yet when they put songs together, they do not break it out. And, you know, as for the Academy Awards, you know, uh, this category got so thin about a decade ago that the year that Brett McKenzie won for Man or Muppet, there were only two songs in the category. It's kind of feast or famine with this category. And lately, as more musicals have made it into the category, once again, it's been filled out pretty easily. And also, there's no way to predict what's going to win because, okay, last year we had an Encanto song. It was not, we don't talk about Bruno, it was Dos Oruguitas, and it lost to No Time to Die from the James Bond movie, which is kind of the ultimate credits song, right? A couple of years ago when the song from Eurovision, this, that silly Will Ferrell movie Eurovision Song Contest was... That was diegetic to the plot, and you know it lost uh, in that case to the song from um, Judas and the Black Messiah. So the musical you'd think would have a leg up, but it doesn't always have a leg up. I think this may be the one year where this song is just so joyous. The fact that it's playing a different sport, I think, is only going to help it. I also think anybody who didn't vote for it assuming that they're going to get the two stars of RRR to recreate that spectacular dance. I'm, I, you can actually see it. If you, if you look up the song on streaming services, the cover of the single features, the two of them doing the dance. And the minute you see them arms akimbo and their legs crossed, you can remember the dance immediately. If you've seen the movie, it's going to be a little bit like walk, watching Ricky Martin on the Grammys tw 22, 30 years ago, where everybody took one look at that and said, Oh yeah. That guy deserves a Grammy. It's going to be one of those where everybody's going to take one look at Natsu Natsu and say, oh yeah, that deserves the Oscar. This thing is, you know, going on all cylinders. It's, I'll say it, it's my favorite song in the category. It's the one I'm rooting hardest for. It's the one I think that not only understood the assignment, but exceeded the brief. Really the only thing preventing it is if the Academy decides to go in a more stately ballady direction, which they do from time to time. They did it just last year, um, and they could do it again. Now, the last song on our list, This Is a Life, from Everything Everywhere All at Once, music by Ryan Lott, David Byrne, and Mitski, lyric by Ryan Lott and David Byrne. This is a life Every Louis and I talked last week about Ryan Lott um, because he's also up for best score for Everything Everywhere All at Once as part of the indie rock act Sun Lux, which is officially credited uh, on this song. If you actually look it up in streaming services, it's not credited to Ryan Lott. It's credited to Sun Lux featuring Mitski and David Byrne. 
uh, and they all get a writing credit on it. So if this were to win the Oscar, all three of them would win. By the way, one other fun statistic, there are two previous, not only nominees, but winners in this category. We've already talked about Lady Gaga, who of course won for Shallow. David Byrne won this statue way back in 1988 for the score for The Last Emperor, uh, which I believe he worked on with Ryuichi Sakamoto, if I have that right. One of the best all-time scores. Widely considered one of the greatest scores of all time, right? right? I, I don't, Just an absolute... I, what I know about scores would fit in a thimble, but yeah. No, you, yeah. The, the, I'm so glad we're talking about that. Yes, that is a listener. Pause right now and go listen to that score and can come right back. <laughs> right. No, it's it's one of those scores that's placed alongside, you know, Peter Gabriel's Last Temptation of Christ among like all-time great movie scores. So David Byrne would actually take a second Oscar if he wins this year. I'll leave it to you guys to analyze it at a musical level before I say anything else. But I, the one thing I would say just ontologically, what is this song? Um, this is the song that is most like score. It is the least song-like song in the category, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily a negative, but Again, as we were just saying about the song from RRR, I think the brief here and the function of the song is very different than what any of the three power ballads are doing or what uh, Natsu Natsu from RRR is doing. So uh, be curious to know what you guys think of it as a song. This is a song that I'll just keep listening to indefinitely, <laughs> I've decided. To me, when I listen to this and I think about the how this got made and and what the process might have been, it's it's so tied in with the score from a textural and musical perspective, but it's it is very different. If I were to guess, I would think this is a really classic case of letting a film or a script wash over you and then allowing these two recording artists to, you know, basically interpret it in the most of them way possible. I think it's very, it's a very, very honest interpretation uh, into, from Mitski's catalog and David Byrne's catalog. It it, it fits. It's just so much a part of their aesthetic. They, they bring so much to it is what I'm trying to say. They bring so much of themselves to it. And it also does feel like the score. So I think in that sense, it's a triumph of collaboration and of like integration of the song format into the score. To me, in terms of like, what kind of song is this? I kind of think it's like a Stephen Sondheim song. It reminds me in a very, very weird way in a kind of like everything, everywhere, all at once kind of way of Send in the Clowns. And it has this kind of desperate, beautiful, very like mature and honest vocal performance that's totally stripped back, but has this kind of bubbling orchestration behind it that just gives it a whole level of of conflict and depth. I personally, that's like I'm that's one of the reasons why I love this song so much is that it it makes me think of some kind of American songbook, but integrated into the score in a very contemporary way. And it like, and I think in terms of like digesting all of those influences, I think it's very much like the film in its ability to kind of be a lot of things at once. It, it's gorgeous and it sounds cool and the lyrics are amazing. And like, it's just, it's an awesome song. It's so good. I agree a hundred percent. I actually have a hard time listening to this and not crying. Oh, I gave up. Yeah, you gotta cry. <laughs> Like even when I was listening through the the clips that you that you sent, Skid, 
like just 10 seconds in, I was like, oh, okay. Like just being dropped into it. There's something about the harmonic character of it, the recording quality of it, the intimacy and delicacy of the vocal delivery, right? Because it is an interesting thing of like, I'd say Mitski more than David Byrne. Her vocals still sound a lot like Ryan Lott's vocals from when he's, you know, singing in the band. And I also think that like function wise, that conversation that we've been having, the thing that's occurring to me now is that in verses, because it is a credit song, right? It plays over the credits, but the fact that it is the, you know, the composers of the score and the composers of this song are the same. It almost feels like you've been in this conversation with these people and the sort of ideas and how they're framing the kind of aural world of the thing the whole time. And then at the very end, it emerges in that perspective speaks to you, you know, through the song, through the singing, which is just like such an incredible, powerful thing. And as we're talking about integration for it, it to feel like this credits song, quote unquote, sort of emerges out of the movie to sort of send you out of the thing. is just so insanely satisfying um, I also have to say that I'm a pretty big Sun Lux homer. Like I'm a very big fan of the band and this is pretty tangential, but I want to share it anyways. I had um, this great experience of not knowing what they sounded like and going to see them live for the first time. And I don't know how often any of you have had that experience of like just going to a show, not knowing who's playing or having heard of somebody and just as they start playing, you have this feeling of like, oh, this is going to be one of my favorite bands. And there's something about the power of that, of not having an expectation or being prepared for what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, in person, people are making the music that's like, oh, my God, I had that very luckily with Sun Lux. It also is just like there's a certain excitement that I feel anytime I hear their movie and to get to hear them be a part of this movie that I also was completely nuts about was just like the whole thing really just resonates with me in this certain way. It's easy for me to wax romantic about the role that it plays in the the movie because it's sort of like this longer arc of of special things sort of happening in me listening to the music that they make. I think the film feels that way too about the people involved. This film, it's so hard to watch this film and not get the fact that this was a production made of like a group of people that really banded together <laughs> to make something really wild. You know, the, the Daniels who directed it, um, the cast, this assembly of a group of people that some of them hadn't worked in like decades. And and then original score going to a band, um, nomination going to a band instead of uh, a single composer. And then the collaboration between Mitski and David Byrne. And there's, there's a, deep sense of like collaboration across the board with this film that is present in the song. And I think you're, you're totally right. The fact that it's at the end, it's really just kind of like a group hug. That's kind of how it feels like to me. And I just, it's such a perfect way to end this film because the whole thing feels like a group hug. You get the sense that these are friends. Everyone involved is like pitching in, in a, in a very like, best friend kind of way to make this thing happen. I might be projecting here, but I get the sense that this song, this score, this film was made all in the same spirit of collaboration. And I think that's why it's so different from say like 
some of the other nominations where it's like, I can see, okay, like, well, agents got involved and there was a lot of negotiation and like the artist really like probably made themselves pretty scarce. And like, they probably had a lot, a lot of veto power and like, cause we're dealing with like major stars with like Lady Gaga and the amount of star power that is present in some of these productions can really be felt from a couple of miles away. And I, there's none of that in this film there's a lot of stars on screen and like their charisma and their this movie's just dripping in charisma but it's got such a humble like collaborative spirit to it that you just can't not feel like you're being embraced by every aspect of this especially the music i think it's a an open question whether this is going to get swept up in you know the nomination hall for everything everywhere all at once that i think is the scenario under which it potentially wins the prize, which I think is entirely possible. I'm still betting that Natsu Natsu stands out more. But again, as you guys are pointing out, what this one is doing is so original and so creative and endemic to its its brief that anybody who appreciates that sort of thing. It's interesting because I first paid attention to this song when I was preparing for our recording of Best Original Score last week. And if you play the score album by Sun Lux, this song, it just kind of emerges out of the vibe of the rest of the album. It's it, it's kind of just one more track on this, you know, very interesting score that we were all big fans of when we talked about original score. Um, Mitski and David Byrne are not even the only vocalists in the score. You've got people like Nina Moffat and Rob Moose and others singing on this score. Obviously, given the profile of Byrne and Mitski, there's every chance in the world that this could take the prize. It's interesting to me because as a song, to me, it's kind of like the square root of all three of these artists. It doesn't specifically sound like either David Byrne or Mitski, two artists I've followed pretty extensively. It sounds most like Sun Lux, I think. But even there, I feel like their sensibility is infusing what Lot's sensibility is. So it's kind of like the closest thing that an indie sensibility gets to the perfect little gem of a of a song in this category. It's pretty special for that reason alone. Yeah, and I think that sort of looking at it through the lens of form, like we were talking about, especially with the first three ballads, and also like both of you guys, Chris and Louie, are talking about sort of this, this bringing together of things and you can feel the collaboration of the thing itself harmonically it's real complicated like it's it's got a lot going on in terms of the chords i'm pretty sure there's a key change like halfway through or so it's so lush and involved but it also feels so simple in terms of the listening experience is very sparse in terms of the production choices it starts off and it's just kind of like voice and you know it's complex and yet simple at the same time i agree exactly and for, be able to sort of like strike that balance amid all the other songs that we're talking about and also the the point about with lift me up that these people who are experts who choose to do something very simple there can be something powerful to that but in this when it's like they do it both at the same time and you get both feelings right up next to each other i mean the, the tension of that is just that always excites me it's funny that this is a everything everywhere all at once. But the people involved in this, I think probably live in like a couple square blocks of your neighborhood, Chris. Like it's a deeply Brooklyn project. Five. Yeah. You know, I think that that's important, you know, watching some of the behind the scenes of how they made this movie, the tight crew, it's all practical effects, everyone in the same space. Like this is the type of movie and soundtrack and score that happens when you get people together. 
you know, big productions don't always get to benefit from that, you know, especially it's like, okay, well, we've got this artist, um, we're going to link them in from their studio across the world. And like, we got a couple hours with them and like, let's see what we get. That's just the logistics of it. But you can really tell when everyone like takes their time and hangs out in these close proximity. And like this, my take on this film is like, this is what happens when you have great hang on a movie set and in a studio. It's like you get really weird stuff, but it is so undeniably cool. And whether or not the Academy thinks that that's worth awarding or not is a, you know beyond me. But I think that's what makes this really different from all the other ones. If it wins, it'll be like the late 90s when Elliot Smith was in the category right alongside Celine Dion. And everybody knew Celine Dion was winning that night for My Heart Will Go On. But there was Elliot Smith in his, you know, shambling outfit. You know, if this wins, it's going to be like that. For sure. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. Other movie songs that caught your ear in 2022? We want to make some shout outs. There were some shortlist candidates that uh, didn't quite make it. The Eternal Bridesmaid in it, it one's heart does not bleed for her uh, because she's, you know, kind of doing all right on the charts in case you haven't noticed. It's Taylor Swift, who continues to be put forward for songs from movies that do not get nominated. She was on the shortlist for Carolina from the movie Where the Crawdads Sing. And when it came out, yet again, people were saying, is this going to be the one that finally gets Taylor Swift nominated for an Oscar? The answer is no. I thought it was pretty good. I, I find that, frankly, Taylor does second-rate material for movies. This is a little bit like what Louis was saying before about how, for a big pop star, these are kind of sidebar uh, adventures, whether it's uh, the song she did for Fifty Shades of Grey with... Uh, Zane Malik a few years back or the song she did from New Year's Day a while ago. These are not considered the best remembered Taylor hits. I thought this one was pretty good and had a bit of that folklore evermore vibe, but I just think she's going to have to bring her A game if she's going to get nominated for an Oscar, I guess. She's not going to get the Diane Warren treatment is what you're saying. No, I mean, she's got to get nominated first, right? <laughs> Also, I think The Weeknd was uh, shortlisted for a song from uh, the latest Avatar movie. And I am a moderate fan of The Weeknd. I, you know, I kind of veer from song to song, but I, I like a lot of his stuff. And I thought he he did a fine job with the Avatar song, but um, it didn't make the cut and it was not a big hit. So I wasn't that surprised when it got left on the cutting room floor in terms of the, the nominations. I guess in keeping with what I said last episode, not an original song or not a new song, but that Nirvana track in the Batman really carried quite a lot of water for that film. Wholeheartedly agree. Did a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> right. No. And I, it should be said that of course, there's a reason why they call it best original song. Not only was something in the way by Nirvana, which was used extensively in the Batman, not eligible, but they didn't even shortlist it. They knocked out music from Elvis, including the big top 10 hit by Doja Cat, uh, her remake of Hound Dog that sort of grafts Hound Dog with some new stuff, but the new stuff wasn't enough new stuff for the Academy. So the music branch ruled it ineligible yeah. because it's basically a sort of reupholstering of the old Lieber Stoller classic Hound Dog. So you, you got to bring it with the originality, I guess. Mm. That feels so antiquated ultimately, because basically what they're saying is if you sample a song, then it can't be considered an original song. I think so. Yeah. Right, you're speaking towards that's how they're going to view the thing, but it feels very antiquated because that's not how music operates at the current moment, I would say. 
It sounds like you're saying a lot of this is arbitrary. <laughs> which <no>. is shocking <laughs> to me. Shocked, shocked. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Skid. Yeah, thanks, Skid. Yeah, super fun. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. One more Oscar episode to go. If you missed any episodes, you can also find them at the website. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.